Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Just a couple quick comments here. Had a good time with the podcast this week. Not Scientology related, but I'd still like you guys to check it out because we started the Zombie Idea Project. And uh, that's actually a collaboration that I am working on with a uh, friend of mine, Nick, who has done some great research and uh, help with me on that. And, uh, and I think it's pretty interesting stuff. So anyway, check it out. And uh, also, the, the Deconstructing Scientology series is now finished. Oh, so finally done with that book. It will no longer be in my life. <laughs> so... Um, there will be some new things coming uh, very soon. I've got a few things uh, in between, some projects that are happening. Uh, shorter ones, but interesting stuff. And then we will be embarking on another long series of videos about Scientology directly. But first, um, there's some non-Scientology stuff and some other critical thinking things and whatnot that I want to stick in there in between. So uh, look forward to that starting, uh, starting this week. All right, so now let's go ahead and get on with your questions. Queasier. I appreciate all the time you spend disseminating information and correcting misapprehensions slash untruths. I've been watching your videos for a few weeks now and still can't figure out how staff members support themselves. You've said they all have other paid jobs, but how do they work around the emergency demands at their Scientology posts that may require 12 hours, days, or more? Their paid jobs must be at nights and on the weekends. Are they usually part-time shift work? Those typically don't pay well or provide benefits. And what about when you personally were traveling on behalf of Scientology? That's days at a time when you aren't earning. I just cannot fathom how it works financially. I imagine roommates and shared housing are involved, but rents are very high in Santa Barbara, LA, Pasadena, etc. Okay, so first thing, let's clarify. Um, for no newcomers here and people who haven't watched a lot of my videos yet, and don't quite understand that there are different levels of Scientology. I'm just going to really quickly lay this out, that there is public, right? People with paying jobs, lives, kids, houses, etc. They just pay for their services and they do their Scientology. Then there is, above that, there is the level of staff. Scientology staff members at, say, Miami or Denver or Milano or, you know, Dusseldorf or something. Like what I call local city churches or... Uh, what Scientology calls Class 5 orgs. They receive um, not a lot of money, um, depends on how much income is being made that week, but their, their pay can fluctuate from nothing to a couple hundred bucks. Uh, all depends on how much income they had that week and bonuses and that sort of thing. They get big bonuses for um, when they get big donations to the International Association of Scientologists. That's that's what really pays a lot of bonuses in Scientology is when you're just making straight money and flowing it up the line. Otherwise, they're, they're really not making very much, and so they have to have other jobs, or they have to have a spouse who supports them. Uh, then you have, above that, you have the C organization, and that is a full-time, 24-7, flat out. They're not doing anything but Scientology. Their room and board is paid for. Their travel is paid for. Uh, medical is generally actually covered by the state because they claim poverty when they go into the hospital and, and they usually end up on some government subsidy, uh, subsidized programs. Um, but generally speaking, the cost of living for them is paid for by the Sea Org and they receive a, a flat rate 
of 50 bucks a week. And with taxes and stuff taken out because they pay some social security and stuff, that comes out to about 45 bucks a week. They're never gonna make more than that unless they're making um, bonuses, which happen twice a year at Christmas and on Sea Org Day in, in August. Uh, otherwise, they're making, you know, at most 50 bucks a week. Uh, often that will be half pay, three quarter pay, quarter pay, depending on, you know, various circumstances, no pay. But Sea Org members are not making more than 50 bucks a week. Um, so those are the three levels. So I want to clarify that because I, worked for the Santa Barbara Church of Scientology, which was a city class five org, and I made varying amounts of money when I worked there, and I worked there 40, 50 hours a week. Um, I did that for, what, eight years. Then I joined the Sea Organization, and I went when I was 25 years old, and I moved down to Los Angeles, and I did that for another 17 years. Then I was on that pay system, and I was, you know, living the life of a Sea Org member. Um, so like, for example, when I traveled, the, the hotels that I stayed at were paid for by the Sea Org. The food I ate when I was off base out traveling was paid for by the Sea Org. So, um, and we were given, by the way, $20 a day, uh, to eat. So we got pretty clever on how to spend that money so that we were eating. We often did trips to the grocery store and things like that. Okay. So as far as the class five staff go, which I think is what most of your questions are directed to, um, the whole time that I worked in Santa Barbara, or most of the time that I worked in Santa Barbara, I had another job. I had two full-time jobs. I had the job that I did at the church, and then I had another full-time job. So um, it, can it could depend on what your schedule is at the church. Churches have two schedules. They have a day schedule, which is Monday through Friday, 9 to 6. And they have a foundation schedule, which is Monday through Friday from 7 to 10, and Saturday and Sunday from 9 to 6. So you're on one of those two schedules, day or foundation. And if you're on a day schedule, then you're going to have to get part-time work uh, nights and weekends. If you're on a foundation schedule, then that means you generally have a full-time day job. And that gives bennies and that sort of thing. I did both. Um, and I alternated over the years and stuff. I was very dedicated. I wanted to be at the church more than I was doing other things. But at the same time, I had to pay rent. I had to buy food. I had to get around. So I often had day jobs and I was working nights and weekends for Scientology. Um, most of the time, from my experience, people who work um, in the day, work the day shift for the church, are often doing so because they have spouses right, who have day jobs, who are supporting them, right, because um, it's pretty much volunteer work. So, um, but there was a period of time where I was working for the church during the day. I switched. I went back and forth. Uh, Santa Barbara was a full-time org. They were full, full-time, so you could be there anytime. You could be their day. You could be their foundation, but most people were their foundation because they had day jobs. So that's kind of how it breaks down. Um, I mean, I could talk about this and just go on and on and on, but I think you get the idea of how these different structures, these different levels of, of commitment to the church work. And, um, and the Sea Org life is not, uh, you know, a great life. I mean, you're always just barely making it, barely getting by. You know, when you're, when you're getting 45 bucks a week, that's, to, that's, that's buying your underwear, that's buying your shampoo, that's buying snacks that you want, right? If you can get over to the grocery store on Sunday morning when there's 
time to do your wash and time to clean your room. That's when people would do a little bit of shopping. You know, for women, that's when they were getting their, um, you know, any sort of uh, deodorant, pantyhose, that kind of stuff, right? All the women's stuff. Uh, that's the money you have to get that stuff, right? All the personal things that you need, socks, right? Um, but the more big, broad things are being paid for by the Sea Org. And of course, that means that whatever food they're serving you in the, in from the galley, that's the food you get, right? Which is why you go buy some snacks, right? Because some of that food was, you know, it was not so great. Other times it was, you know, it was all right. So it, it, would, it would always be, okay, what's today going to bring, you know? Uh, boy, if you're in the Sea Org, you better like eggs because you're going to be eating a whole lot of eggs for breakfast. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. Anyway, I, I think that gives a general answer to the question, so I'll, I'll just stop there. Russ T. Can you talk about rollback? Sure. This is something that doesn't get talked about a lot. Rollback is a procedure. It's an investigatory procedure that is used in Scientology by ethics officers. Rollback is a technique that uses the e-meter in order to find um, where enemy lines or black PR have come from. And the theory of it is like this. Hubbard wrote a couple issues on this, and basically what he said is that um, you know, the enemies of Scientology try to subvert it. They try to take it down. And one of the ways that they do it uh, is that they will come up with these black PR lines, these, these things that, you, that people will say in order to purposefully discourage or harm or create a bad reputation for Scientology. An example of an enemy line would be, you know, don't join staff in a Scientology organization because you'll never get paid. Now, that happens to be mostly true. The insinuation or the, the implication with, within the world of Scientology is that these black PR lines or these things that, these enemy lines that are said are not true, right? Scientologists are not supposed to believe these things. These are things that are made up by the enemy. Another example of, of what would be considered a black PR line within Scientology is that David Miscavige beats his staff, right? Look at how bad Scientology is because David Miscavige beats people, right? Well, that happens to be true according to the testimony of many, many people. But Scientologists would claim you're just making that up and it's just an enemy line, okay? That's the, so rollback is, is a procedure that's done to find out if somebody in the world of Scientology, a Scientology staff member, Sea Org member, public even, um, is caught saying one of these lines to another Scientologist, right? Then they're going to be accused of spreading defamation, spreading enemy lines. This is a big no-no in Scientology. This is one of the ways that they thought police people in the world of Scientology is they control what you can say. And you don't want to be caught saying enemy lines or black PR, right? Um, so if you are, if this comes up, then what they'll do is they'll take you into a room and they'll put you on the meter and you got to hold those cans. And the guy will do, if he's trained to do it, because not everybody knows how to do this. It's a special procedure, just like auditing or sec checking. But a rollback is done in order to find out Okay, you have said David Miscavige beats his staff, right? And the guy goes, yeah, I said that, right? And you go, okay, good. Where'd you get that idea? And the guy goes, oh, well, I got it from, you know, Sally Smith, right, who told me uh, that, that that's what happens, and I believe Sally Smith. And the, and the rollbacker, 
you know, then says, okay, good. Well, that's, that's what I wanted to find out is where it came from. The point of doing a rollback is not to make the person feel better or give them any personal gain. It's supposed to be an investigatory activity. But while they're doing it, the, again, the whole you know, implication is that you're in trouble for getting a rollback to, one, you know, to some degree or another because you've been spreading these lines. And you're supposed to then uh, recognize that you have been doing something bad, right? That this line that was given to you came from a suppressive person. And the, and the idea of the rollback is to roll it all the way back to the suppressive person who fed it into the organization in the first place or fed it to Scientologists. Hubbard claimed in the issues on rollback that FBI agents would do this. And he, and he actually talked about an operation that they would conduct where a couple FBI, undercover FBI guys, might, you know, might go into a bar where they know there's a Scientologist sitting there having a drink or something, right, or at a restaurant. They'll come in separately, sit down at the bar, this is the example he gave in the issue, and start having a discussion or, or even a, maybe even a, a talk or argument even maybe about suddenly they're talking about Scientology and they throw out one of these lines and they throw it out and this is supposed to be a, a covert operation of, of intelligence, an intelligence activity to get the Scientologist to now hear this line and start wondering and thinking whether there's something going on in the church, right? Oh, David Miscavige beats his staff. So the church is interested in where these people got this and rolling it back to the source so they can find who the suppressive elements are that are trying to take down the church. And it might start with Joe and go back to Sally and then Bill and then Frank and then Sue and all you know, and the rollbacker, the person who's doing the investigation, will get every one of these people onto the meter, get where they got it from, and then trace it back. Right, and they're supposed to keep all this information on little three by five cards, um, you know, on each line and who said it and where they got it from. And so this this follows the whole line. It's pretty simple, really, when you think about it. And. Uh, and then, of course, every person who comes up with these lines gets an ethics handling, right? They get, you know, told that this was suppressive, this was not okay, they shouldn't be saying these things. Uh, you know, they're obviously in trouble for having, having spread the black PR. Even if they didn't originate it, they spread it, right? And that's, that's really bad in Scientology. You're supposed to keep that crap to yourself. So that's basically how a rollback works and um, it's used in conjunction with other things I've done a whole video about the truth rundown um, I'll try to remember to put a link to that in the in the description below here um, the truth rundown is an auditing activity that is done in order to handle black PR or enemy lines that people have and why they would accept them and why they would pass them on um, but that's an auditing thing and that is that's a much more detailed procedure the rollback is sort of the, the way you find out about the enemy lines and the way you, it's, it's just an investigation. So it's not the same thing as the truth rundown. But, but obviously also, yeah, one last thing is when the, when the person who's doing the investigation does an interview on somebody, they will write a report, what's called a knowledge report, after the interview is done and they'll lay out everything the person said. That goes into the guy's ethics folder, right? And so now it's permanently on record that this person, Joe, 
was spreading black PR or enemy lines about Scientology within the group. So then they know, oh, there's a guy. And if you get too many of those kind of reports, you're going to become a candidate for the Truth Rundown pretty quickly. Uh, and again, you can watch the video on that. One or two, nobody's going to like, you know, that's not going to freak everybody out. But if you're, you know, somebody who's found spreading a lot of this stuff, they're going to want to talk to you. So, Bert Benz. Chris, could you explain what a one-shot clear is? Reading Dynamics 55, which is a mess in its own right, it struck me as absurd. Was there ever a real application of the process? Was it discontinued? Why would anyone audit for hours and hours if it'd be possible to arrive at the state of clear in one shot? Back in the early 1950s, shortly after Hubbard first came out with Scientology, there was this concept floated around or being talked about of a one-shot clear. In other words, one, rather than doing all this Dianetic auditing and all these hours and hours of Scientology auditing, would there be one command you could give a person, one question or one direction that you could give them that would pop them out and boom, they're clear. So this was something Hubbard discusses in the book Dianetics 55, which is a book he wrote in 1955 to sort of give an update on where Dianetics had gotten to in the last five years since it was written in 1950. And mostly the Dianetics 55 book is about communication and it's about Scientology stuff, but, he, but he's you know, kind of updating the subject, which is what it was updated to because in 1953, you know, 54 is when Scientology really came on strong. Church of Scientology was formed and Dianetics was no longer really a thing. I think, Dianetic, I think probably in 55 is when Hubbard got the rights to the word Dianetics back from Don Purcell, who he had, uh, you know, who he'd, he'd conned out of a bunch of money, and Purcell had owned the copyrights to Dianetics for a while. Anyway, one shot clear. The, the process Hubbard, if I remember this right, the process Hubbard talked about from 55 was um, uh, be three feet back of your head or try not to be three feet back of your head, right? In other words, the, the, the point of that command is to pop you out of your head, you know, as a, as a spiritual being, right? To exteriorize you. And Hubbard thought that there was a period of time where Hubbard was all about exteriorizing people. And he thought that was going to be the ticket. This is the way we do it. Uh, he said years later um, that it was, it was uh, good for research but it wasn't, it wasn't very stable. You know, you could pop somebody out of their head easily enough, but you couldn't make it stable. And so uh, this whole, you know, research approach that Hubbard claimed he was taking, uh, which, I, which I, you know, I think that is what he was doing. I think he was messing around with people, and I think he was trying to, um, you know, get them to think that they had gone out of their head, thereby proving to them that they were a or are a spiritual being, right? This was Hubbard's proof of this, is, is if you could have some idea that you're out of your body, and it didn't just have to be that you'd pop into a corner and you could see the room. Hubbard even claimed that you could pop out of your body without visio, without a visual um, sense, right? You could feel it or somehow, you know, Hubbard just basically said, look, if you think you're out of your body, it's good enough for me. You're out of your body, right? And there was no test of it or no... Uh, no way of verifying it particularly. In other words, it's a wholly subjective experience. And, you know, sorry, but that doesn't cut it when it comes to verifiable evidence of something. You can't just, oh, you're out of your head? Okay, great. Then you're out of your head. Oh, wait, how? Wow. 
that's all the proof we need. Man's a spiritual being. Oh, Scientology is true. Like, no, it doesn't work that way, okay? Uh, and this is what, unfortunately, most ex-Scientologists who still believe in Scientology, this is what they don't get. They just don't grasp this idea that evidence is evidence and, that, and it's not subjective experience, right? Anyway, <laughs> sorry for my little rant there. Um, basically, Hubbard himself said uh, years later that, I, I think he said it in 1955, that the one-shot clear was not really something that was very workable and... Um, and he fell back to, you know, no, we're going to have to do lots and lots and lots of auditing on people in order to get them clear and then get them up to OT when he later talked about the state of operating Thetan. So there's a whole bunch of technical stuff for you, but it was uh, fun and games in the 1950s. And there is no modern concept within Scientology of a one-shot clear. It's, it's historical information that is not, nobody, nobody thinks that that's possible. Misbehaving. Your mom seems to have successfully moved on with her life after Scientology and is doing well. She also seems to have been able to let go of attachment to the subject. She also doesn't seem like the kind of person who would be motivated to post any comments on a critic's blog. I believe this is the way it is for the vast majority of ex-Scientologists as well as ex-cult members of all stripes. When we get out, we just want to be out and left alone to recover and get on with our lives as best we can. Some people, however, seem to be a bit obsessed with being a critic. I have been in both camps at different times of my life. I can see why an ex might want to speak out because they feel so wronged and want to let the world know about it, to warn others away from the cult and its trappings, to unburden themselves by writing about their experiences, etc. I can also see why people would not want to speak out, especially as an ex-Scientologist. Fear of reprisal, apathy, disgust, embarrassment, to protect others, etc. Can you comment on what you think it is that motivates people to speak out or not? Why do you think a person should speak out or not? Well, you pretty much nailed it in the, in the question. You pretty much answered it. I mean, all the reasons you gave are pretty much all the reasons I've thought of as to why people should or do speak out. It's cathartic. Uh, it definitely is. There's no question about that. Um, and it is helpful to others. I uh, have found in doing as much as I've been doing with it that I've been getting tons of emails and calls and, and various communications uh, uh, from people who have been helped by the work that I do. And that has kept me going because, uh, you know, when I first started doing this, I, I, I had no idea that this was something I was going to keep doing for, you know, an extended period of time. I wanted to I wanted to talk about some things. I wanted to get some stuff off my chest. I very much wanted to expose the lies uh, and the deceptions for what they were. And I wanted, I wanted Scientologists to find out about this um, as, as much as I could, which is why you'll find a lot of my earlier work is more tuned in that direction than my later work. There came a point where I realized, okay, I've said as much as I can say to Scientologists that they're going to be willing to listen to if they come on my channel. Now I just have to, as I recovered more, my own feelings about the validity of Scientology and the, the helpfulness of Scientology changed quite a bit. And I now, you know, regard the entire subject as, as pretty much wholly destructive. Even though I will say that I was helped by it in certain ways, and that certainly other people have been helped by it in certain ways, the again the balance of help versus you know destruction 
you know, the destruction definitely is more weighty when it comes to Scientology specifically, so I don't endorse it or recommend people do it. Um, okay, so, so, so it becomes a thing of shifting uh, motivations, maybe, you know, maybe I, maybe I and maybe other people start talking about it for one reason and then it develops into something else. Uh, it has for me. I think it has for others too. I know I've had conversations with Mike Rinder who has said that, uh, you know, he keeps his blog going, which is a daily thing, I, incredibly hard to do, but he does it because he knows it helps people, right? He's, he's done. I mean, he's finished with Scientology. He's got no, nothing on it anymore, right? He's like done. I feel the same way. I'm, I'm done with it. I, I'm, I'm ready to move on, right? But people really want to know about it. Uh, and for people who are still coming out and need resources to go to, this channel is one of those resources. My book is one of those resources. I've got more stuff I want to put out that I, I think will be helpful in that direction. So, so that's why we, you know, continue to do it. I got nothing on people not wanting to do anything about it. Uh, people who come out of destructive cult situations of all stripes, uh, generally speaking, have varying degrees. Some, okay, sorry, some people who come out of these situations have varying degrees of PTSD. Not everybody, okay? Uh, some people have a lot of damage. I mean, some people were really screwed up by the experience. Other people, you know, everybody's an individual. Some people can just brush it off and move on. And great, you know, no, no problem. Uh, other people really, you know, need some time. They need some distance. They need some space. They got to recover and they don't want to have anything to do with it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to hear about it. Fine. You know, no, whatever's going to work for that person. Um, I have encouraged people to speak out about it myself because I think it's cathartic. I think it's helpful, but I know in saying that, that it's not for everybody. And the majority can't really say. I don't have any statistics or numbers to point to as to whether more people or less people speak out, whether it's good for more people or not. I don't know. I just know from my own experience what I've lived. And so, you know, that's all I can give to people. So, I don't know. I think that answers it. Alan Hall. What was the main reason your mom and dad quietly left the church? I understand why they did so quietly because of you. But what was the reason for them wanting to leave while being so high on the bridge? And once your parents decided to leave, did they then break a major rule by discussing each other's case gain and what the levels entail? My parents left for different reasons. My mom had um, some really bad experiences at FLAG in Florida. And she came back from that and she was like, yeah, I'm done. I'm done with this. This isn't for me anymore. And that's about as much as I'm going to say about that. My father and I have talked about why he left the organization, and some of it had to do with the fact that he felt like he had accomplished his goals and, and reasons for being a Scientologist in the first place, and he got, you know, all the way up to the top of OT7, and he was like, okay, yeah, I, got, I get this, right? And, he, and anything else he wanted to get from Scientology, uh, he felt he could do on his own. So he was pretty much done with it. And he also had really major problems with the organization of Scientology. He did not like David Miscavige. He did not like the direction the church was going in. And he just, you know, thought that, that organizationally it was, um, you know, he thought Hubbard's technology was great, but Hubbard's policy and the organization and how it did what it did 
he wasn't into that at all. And, uh, and so he was willing to just kind of like, yeah, I'm done. And that was that, right? As far as them breaking major rules by talking about their case or whatever, I don't, I don't know that they particularly were doing that. Uh, they did that with me because I talked to them about it. I'm the one who originated communication with them about uh, the OT levels and things like that. And yeah, they were breaking rules talking to me about it. No question about it. They, they never broke the rules before, right? When I was growing up in Scientology, you know, what, what was supposed to be kept confidential was kept confidential. But after we all were out, well, what, what's the point of, you know, being all hush-hush about everything? I mean, my, my dad knew I read everything on, on the internet. We talked about stuff. My mom and I talked about stuff. I asked them a lot of questions about things when I was doing research for, for my book. So, yeah, they broke rules, but who cares? <laughs> there you go. That sound. It must be flash answers time. Anonymous lurker. Some Sea Org members interact with the general public, such as those who conduct tours at open to the public exhibitions or run booths at book conventions. I presume all such people are Sea Org. Please correct me if I'm wrong. I also know that the Sea Org members are paid next to nothing. If somebody were to offer a financial tip to one of the Sea Org members, such as $20 as a thank you after a tour, would the member be permitted to keep the money themselves, or would they be pressured to turn it over to Scientology's coffers? Did you have any personal experience with outsiders giving money to Sea Org members as a favor or a tip? You'll find Scientologists at flea markets and things like that. And when they come, when they're staff members at the local, you know, Church of Scientology or whatever, um, then they're just manning booths, you know, things like that. Sea Org members do the same thing. Uh, you'll find Sea Org members uh, doing, you know, out on the street doing pinch tests and and stress tests and this sort of thing. And also at the LRH Life Exhibition. They do tours of the of the that uh, museum area, um, you know, all about L. Ron Hubbard. All of those people will not take your money if you're trying to tip them or give them some personal something for their work. They just will refuse, flat out refuse. And if you you know just drop it on the table and walk away, which would be a little weird. I mean, if you get weird about it, then they'll you know then then force them to take it. Then they might. But they'll just donate it to the church. They're not going to take it. The Sea Org specifically has very, very strict rules about what they call external influences and, and receiving any money from people. Even family is very, is verboten. Absolutely not, not okay. And Sea Org members are, are told, don't do that. Anon C. Did LRH model Scientology on Stalinist-style communism? Can you give examples of how, if yes? No, he didn't. Uh, I think I mentioned a few shows ago um, that uh, Scientology is really no different from any other group that engages in you know, mind manipulation, thought reform, thought control. There's, there's models for this, right? I mean, you have behavior control, information control, thought control, emotional control. And these, are, uh, you know, these models are an analysis of how anyone, any group, will engage in these kind of activities, whether it's uh, Stalinist Russia or um, Communist China or North Korea or Scientology or, uh, you know, the Hare Krishnas, right? And cult leaders don't necessarily model their behavior on other groups that are doing what, they're, what they want to do. 
they, it's like there's only so many ways to do it, right? It might well be that they get various tips or cues from each other, but I highly doubt that you know anyone uh, at the at the level at the top of the Hare Krishnas or that L. Ron Hubbard personally was studying Stalin in order to figure out how to you know put one over on their followers. They just kind of figure it out and roll it. Roll, it just kind of rolls out as they go, you know, and it ends up that looking an awful lot like Stalin because that's how you go about controlling people. Anyway, that's kind of my opinion about it, but that's, that's my answer. W. Meibner, thank you very much for your clear information about the perversion of science in the use of Scientology's pseudoscientific personality test. From my point of view, the conspiracy theory that Scientology could be a CIA front organization or an inside job project is worth mentioning. What do you think? There are Scientology-like problems in the institutions of psychiatry and psychology also. Yeah, no, I don't believe any of that. I have no reason to believe that, that the CIA is at, at all involved with Scientology or that Scientology is somehow a front group for any other group or activity. I think Scientology is all by itself. And I don't, uh, I, not, and the, I think the main reason why is because none of those conspiracy theories, and I've read quite a few of them, explain anything. And they don't, they, there's no real reason to have to go there. Scientology's bad enough all on its own. L. Ron Hubbard was bad enough on his own. David Miscavige, is, as the person who took over, is, is a, a very not good person. So that explains everything about the organization. So I don't really see any reason to have to go there. It doesn't, uh, doesn't do anything for me. Couch. I have a very important question. Coke or Pepsi? Dude, Coke all the way. Uh, absolutely. Pepsi's too sweet. Okay, and that is our show for this week. I hope that you found these answers informative, educational, and entertaining. Thanks very much for coming around. Please leave any questions in the notes section below here in the comments section, as well as any feedback you might have, good, bad, or sideways. Um, and of course, check out my critical merchandise site. I haven't plugged that in a little while, so let's do that. Uh, got some great stuff up on there, and uh, the link to that is also in the notes section below. So have a good time checking that out. I will see you guys next week.